I love the evening service. Uh, Pastor Squeers and I were speaking uh, before the service about how uh, many churches have let the evening service go. Uh, some of you may know that in your own uh, three forms of unity and uh, the instructions and uh, to pastors in uh, the tradition of Dort uh, is that the minister should never remove the evening service, even if it's just he and his family attending. Uh, I love that, and I often quote that, uh, because there are times when it feels like it's only the, the pastor and his family uh, who are there. There's a wonderful story of an elderly woman in an urban center uh, who had a lot of difficulty walking, and uh, she would always come back to the evening service, and she lived quite a ways from the church, had to take public transportation to, uh, to attend, and uh, someone finally asked her, I don't remember her name or anything, but Mrs. Smith, why, how is it that you get back here? You come to the morning service, and then you come back to the evening service. It's such a challenge uh, for you. And she said, well, my heart gets there first, and my legs just follow after. And it's a wonderful testimony of uh, the evening service and how special it is and what a wonderful place it has had in our Reformed heritage, uh, bookending the Lord's Day and God-centered worship. And uh, as we uh, believe uh, in the power of the gospel and the means of grace for our lives and the, the power of Christian fellowship uh, to encourage one another, uh, we see why this has been a part of our heritage. Uh, it's not because we've become more spiritual and more mature, that we've canceled the evening services and so uh, many of our churches. And so I, I'm encouraged to be with you this evening. Uh, may the Lord bless uh, the ministry of his word. If you would turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, and this evening we'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. Zephaniah 3 verses 14 through 20. Please hear the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, apart from your spirit, apart from your grace, Lord, we will not hear 
and appropriate your holy word, your gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all the riches of the fullness of your love in Jesus Christ as your word is proclaimed this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, the glorious love of God. Is there anything more wonderful in all the world that we could contemplate this evening? Is there anything more amazing to consider? God's love is infinite, unchanging, immeasurable, ineffable or indescribable, like God himself, too marvelous for words to adequately express. God's love is like a, a bottomless fountain. You know, the ocean on average is 2.3 miles deep, but there is no bottom to God's steadfast love. His love can never increase or diminish because at this very moment, his love is perfect. And to know God's love, to rest in God's love and experience God's love is 10,000 times better than anything in this world. God's love is essential to our salvation. God's love is central to our piety and our growth in grace. It's that which motivates our worship. For we do not come to worship primarily to be givers, as if like peacocks to say, to show how spiritual we are and how strong we are, we come first and foremost to worship to receive, to receive God's love through the preaching of his word and through the sacraments. We come and we say, Lord, tell me again that you love me. Tell me again that I am forgiven of my sins. Tell me again that nothing can separate me from your love in Christ Jesus. I need to hear it once again because this has been a hard week. I have given in to temptation. I have allowed my heart to wander. I have not loved you as I ought or loved my neighbor as myself. And I need to hear again, Lord, that you indeed love me. God's love is abundant. It's lavish. We come to Lord's Day worship longing to hear him tell us again that we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, and that because we are in Christ, the Lord will never let us go. Lord, tell me again that my remaining indwelling sin does not disqualify me from receiving your love, your saving love in Christ. Knowing and resting in God's love is central to the Christian life. Sharing his love is central to our witness as Christian believers. Isn't this why the Apostle Paul states in Ephesians 3.18 that the Ephesians would, quote, have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love in Christ Jesus, a love that surpasses all human, what? Comprehension. When people look for a description of God's love, they often go to John 3.16, that gospel in a nutshell. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. Or to 1 John 4, 8 through 10, which says, God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. All throughout scripture, we are taught about God's sovereign, undeserved redeeming love. God's covenant-keeping love is the main theme of the Bible, and it's in our passage for this evening that we come to one of the most sublime displays of God's love in all of the Bible, a display of God's love that has caused some to call this passage the the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Well, I've divided our passage for this evening into two simple headings. You'll see that in your bulletin. A singing and rejoicing people and a singing and rejoicing God. First of all, a singing and rejoicing people. It's important to get some context here. For almost three chapters, Zephaniah has been painting one of the most vivid and devastating portraits of God's wrath and judgment in all of Scripture. In the opening verses, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Later, the day of the Lord is described by Zephaniah as a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry, and in the fire of God's jealousy, all of the earth will be consumed. In God's time, this judgment will come, will first come upon the southern kingdom of Judah for their false worship, idolatry, and apostasy. Then we learn in chapter 2 that God's just wrath will also be poured out upon Judah's enemies, those nations that were constantly rising up against God's people and brought shame upon them, nations like Philistia and Moab and Cush and Assyria. God's wrath poured out upon these four nations, located to the north and south and east and west of Israel, underscore the comprehensive and universal nature of God's judgment. God's judgment would indeed come to every nation, and to every person, especially as these former judgments anticipated and do anticipate the final judgment on the great day of the Lord. But amidst all of the ominous storm clouds of God's wrath and judgment that were approaching, here in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and following, we get this sudden and glorious view of sunshine. The sunshine of God's love breaking through the clouds. And this love, this amazing, covenant-keeping love of God provides God's remnant with a reason to rejoice and sing. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Though the sins of Israel have been great, God has not finally abandoned his people. There is hope. 
There is marvelous hope, not because of our abilities or capacity to make things right, but because God is faithful to His covenant promises. Covenant promised, established before time, expressed to people throughout redemptive history, and fulfilled in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. At the beginning of this chapter, in verse 1, God pronounced a, quote, woe against Jerusalem, that rebellious and oppressing city. But here the tune has changed. Here God commands the faithful remnant of the city to rejoice and to sing. Look with me again at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. What are God's people commanded to do in light of God's love? In the light of the removal of the rod of his anger and his judgments against them, they are commanded to sing aloud, to rejoice, to shout, to exalt with all of their hearts. There are two things we should pause and consider here. The first thing is this. As recipients of God's mercy and love, it should be our greatest joy to sing and to rejoice in our Savior, to exalt in the praise of His glorious grace, as Paul later puts it. Spurgeon wrote this, Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, in glory we continue to sing. Spurgeon again wrote, Quote, if I did not praise and bless Christ my Lord, I should deserve to have my tongue torn out by its roots from my mouth, to curse my ingratitude. I am a drowned debtor to the mercy of God, over heads and ears, to infinite love and boundless compassion. I am a debtor. Well, Spurgeon certainly has a way with words. We are called to praise, you know, from... It's interesting being a minister and standing up front, and uh, there are times when I uh, personally am uh, much encouraged, like, like any minister, uh, there are times I'm much encouraged by uh, the, the, the joy uh, that's being exuded by God's people as they sing praise and sing with all of their hearts. Uh, there are other times where it can be quite uh, discouraging. Uh, where there are those who stand uh, looking quite glum, uh, looking like, uh, we call them in our denomination, uh, grumpy, cantankerous Presbyterians. Uh, they, they, it, 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 you would think that uh, nothing was right in the world uh, by uh, the glum and discouraged response, in fact, often not singing at all. Uh, one has to wonder whether such a one has uh, known God's love or knows God's love in Christ. Christians sing. Christians sing. It's what we do. Uh, it's what we do because God has saved us. He saved us to worship Him. Christians sing because we are recipients of God's amazing, ineffable love, a love that took away the condemnation that we deserve and put it upon His beloved Son on the cross. So that's the first thing we should consider here. God's mercy and love ought to motivate us to sing aloud and rejoice with all of our hearts, especially 
as we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship God and to get a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath to come? Has God put a new song in your heart, a song of praise to God? I remember as a young Christian, and I often think back to my early days as a Christian because there's something new and, and, and delightful and fresh in those early days as a Christian, and I think of how my heart longed to sing to the Lord. And uh, I, I, I don't want to lose that fervor and that joy of singing out and praise to God because of His great love. The second thing we should consider is that God's people are commanded to sing amidst the thorniness of this present evil age. You say, Pastor, I, I've had challenges. I've had challenges. I don't, I don't think I can sing. Well, of course, the Lord knows, and He's patient with us in, in these difficult times, but God's Word commands us to sing in challenging times. We see in this text that times were difficult. Judgment had come. Judgment is coming. And oftentimes the remnant would be right there experiencing these challenges along with the rest of God's unfaithful covenant people. And yet they're commanded to sing because of God's promises. The remnant was told to sing aloud and to rejoice in God's covenant-keeping love. But this did not mean that God was not in due time going to use the Babylonians as a rod of judgment against his people and lead his people into exile. In other words, God was telling the remnant that even though they will still endure many thorny trials in their lives, they still had reason to sing and to rejoice, not just in the new heavens and in the new earth, but now, right now, we are called to sing through our tears. If ever singing is authentic, it's that which takes place through tears. In my former congregation, there's a dear man named Dwight Allen. He was uh, married to his precious wife for uh, over 60 years. And she was a godly woman, and they had a sweet, playful relationship until the very end. And it was crushing uh, to him to have lost his spouse, as it has been to some of you who have lost your spouse. And how meaningful it was for me as he sat on the second row to be up singing and I would look down and in those, particularly those early months after losing his dear wife, he would sing the first couple of stanzas and then as it moved into these verses about heaven and glory and, and, and he would just begin sobbing, this man in his mid-70s sobbing over his hymnal, the, the tears uh, on the pages of the hymnal. Uh, and that ministered to me so much as he was there every Lord's Day, singing, praising God, fighting through the tears to give God praise. Habakkuk, a contemporary of Zephaniah, expressed this when he said at the end of his book these familiar words, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will, what? Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy 
and the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, he writes. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Dear, dear brothers and sisters, dear fathers and mothers, perhaps you are going through a challenging time right now. Perhaps you're experiencing the thorniness of this present evil age. Right here in Zephaniah 3.14, we are encouraged, we are exhorted to sing, to shout, to rejoice, and to exalt with all of our hearts, not when we get to heaven, but now, amidst the trials, amidst the suffering, with a view to potential future suffering, for we have hope. We have hope. We have a hope that causes us and motivates us to sing, a hope rooted and grounded in God's steadfast loyal, covenant-keeping love and promises, promises that are realized in Jesus Christ. Beloved, we of all people have reason to sing. For verse 15 in our text says, the King of Israel is in the midst of his people, and we shall never again fear evil. Dear ones, God is in our midst. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and he is with us. He is in our midst, savingly, savingly. And doesn't this verse point to Jesus Christ, the one who, according to John chapter 1, tabernacled among us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the King of kings who dwells with his people. And he has conquered our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin, Satan, hell, and death, and so we should never live again in fear. God's people, in verse 16, are exhorted to fear not, to let not your hands grow weak. What does this mean? Well, notice that the verse begins with the words, on that day, referring to the day when God will bring judgment upon his people through the nation of Babylon. Despite this coming judgment, Despite this coming judgment, God tells his remnant not to be gripped and paralyzed by fear. Just because God's people will go through difficulties, it doesn't mean that they should live in fear of the unknown and not be in the service of Yahweh, our blessed triune God. Here, God's people are encouraged to not let their hands grow limp, but to use our hands in active, joyful service to God. This is not a superficial sort of worldly happiness we're talking about here. It's a deep-seated joy that is rooted in Christ in the gospel, one that we have in Christ. We see this same exhortation in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13, where it states, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So let the love of God and the gospel strengthen our drooping hands and weak knees in the midst of our suffering or in view of suffering we may be called to endure so that we may be active in the service of our Lord through prayer, through encouragement, through evangelism, through various other ways of using our gifts in the church and in our community. We are called to be a singing and a rejoicing people, living by faith in Christ and not in fear of the future. 
This brings us to point number two, that God is a singing and rejoicing God. God is a singing and rejoicing God. Look with me at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with singing. The first thing I want us to notice here is the phrase, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. There are many great expressions of love in the world, the, the intense love of a husband for his wife, of a wife for her husband, or for a friend, for a lifelong friend. These are reflections of God's love. But there's a big difference between the greatest expressions of human love and God's love. God's love is coupled with his divine power. He is willing and he is able to save. God's love is powerful and able to accomplish that which it sets out to do. He is a mighty one who will save. He will save his elect to the uttermost. Not one will be lost whom he has set his love and affection upon before the foundation of the world. When God is in the midst of his people, particularly in the assembly of the Lord's Day worship services, where his efficacious word is going forth, God is powerful to save. Listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says, quote, The love of God for his own people is not a soft, sentimental emotion that has no strength to act on behalf of its object. For this God who loves is Yahweh. He is God. He is a mighty hero who saves. This mighty hero is in the midst of his own people with power to save. His love acts concretely to save his people. And what comes next in verse 17 is almost too much to take in. This God who is in the midst of his people, this God who is a mighty hero who saves us, he also rejoices over his people with gladness, is quiet over them in his love, and exalts over them with loud singing. How can this be? God singing over his people rejoicing in his people, God quietly contemplating his love for his people. Here we have beautiful love poetry from God to us, to wretched sinners. God's love poetry to his people, three parallel lines, a poetic triad that almost takes one's breath away. First of all, he will rejoice over you with gladness. God delights in his redeemed children. Dear Christian, think about this for a moment. Let this sink in. God delights in you. He loves you, you personally, with an everlasting love. He rejoices in you. Isaiah 62, 5 says, He rejoices in you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I just did a, a wedding in, in Charleston, and it was uh, such a wonderful celebration on many levels, uh, not least because uh, the, uh, the, the groom was a seventh grader in my youth group in Atlanta. 
and uh, the Lord brought our paths together. He met this wonderful girl. I did their marriage counseling. They're joining the church, and, uh, and, and, and they got married, and they asked me to officiate the wedding. And we were meeting in this beautiful uh, uh, inn in downtown Charleston, and it had this long path with went, went alongside these beautiful English-style gardens, and the way they had it worked out was at the end of this long, grassy walkway, uh, there stood uh, myself and the groom and his father, and the car uh, drove up on the street, you know, about 100 yards away, and she got out of the car, and she began walking down, and there was some beautiful string quartet, and he just put his head down and just began sobbing. Just delighting in his bride. So in love. It was a beautiful moment to think that God delights over us, that God delights over you in this way. God rejoices over you. Secondly, he will quiet you by his love. Now this, this phrase, he will quiet you in his love, it's very difficult to translate in the Hebrew. The Hebrew verb employed here, a karash, or to be quiet, is an intransitive verb, uh, which means it does not take a direct object. So it makes it difficult to know uh, what or who receives the action here. Is it God being quiet or God quieting us? Uh, in the context, I believe it's the former. God is quiet over us in his love. What does this mean? It means that not only does God rejoice over you with his divine gladness, he also quietly contemplates his love over you. He quietly contemplates his love over you. Let that sink in for a minute. Through faith in Christ, you are no longer condemned. You are no longer a child of wrath. You are no longer an object of God's just complaint and the prospect of his righteous judgment. The NIV states, quote, he will no longer rebuke you. That's the sense of this text. No, you are the object of God's deepest affection. And he quietly and contentedly delights over you in his love. The idea is no longer are you the object of his condemnation and his rebuke. You're the object of his love. John Owen states that, quote, God's love is so full so every way complete and absolute that it will not allow him to complain of anything in them whom he loves, but he is silent on the account thereof as it concerns salvation. Is this how you conceive of God's love this evening? So many view God's love as capricious, or harsh, impatient. Some have an experience with their own earthly father that was one of great infidelity in various ways, a, a, an angry father or an abusive father, and they have a hard time contemplating that God could be this loving and kind and compassionate, and yet he is. God loves his redeemed children. He delights in them, even as he delights in his son. I remember when I came to know the Lord after my sophomore year in college, what overwhelmed me 
was the idea that God loved me. It wasn't just a blanketed love towards a faceless people. It was he loved me after all the things that I had done and all the sin that I had committed. And I committed many, and they were not small sins. They were great sins. God loves me. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, I am accepted. I am accepted into the beloved. I've been reconciled to the Father. Finally, it says, He will exalt over you with loud singing. God exalting over me with loud singing? This is the truth we have in this text. You know, I used to, to sing over my children uh, at night when they, were, when they were little. did it for years. I would sing the Aaronic blessing over them from, uh, uh, from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. We, we used to sing this in our church in Scotland when we lived there for a couple of years. We'd sing it after a baptism, and it was beautiful. We're doing it in our church now in Charleston. I would sing over my children. I delight in my children. And I would sing over them. And God delights in you. And he sings over you. What does he sing? I don't know. I don't know what he sings. But it's a song from a father who loves his children with an everlasting love. His banner over you is love. How do we receive this love? We receive this love through Jesus Christ. We receive this love by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. We do not receive God's love apart from Christ. There's no way to be reconciled to God apart from Christ. Many speak of God's love in terms that are antithetical to the Bible. But Christ is the one who the Father sent to this world in order that we could receive God's saving love. Chapter 3 on communion with God by John Owen, he writes this, quote, The Father communicates no issue of his love unto us but through Christ. He is the treasury wherein the Father disposeth all the riches of his grace taken from the bottomless mine of his eternal love. And he is the priest into whose hand we put all the offerings that we return unto the Father. That is where our relationship exists with God. It is through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, where we receive the love of God and where we through him express our love to the Father. And this is the glorious gospel. Again, John, 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearer, for our sins. O. Palmer Robertson once again said this, quote, the whole scene in this text depicts a grand oratorio as God and his people mutually rejoice in their love for one another. It's a text that sings. God singing over us, us responding with song and praise, this echo of song taking place, this antiphony of praise, between God and his people. Zephaniah says that God looks upon his people in this way. Beloved, God looks down upon you in this way. He rejoices over you with singing, with loud singing. And this love is rooted in the eternal plan of God, is it not? 
This love is rooted, we see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It is rooted in his love. This is not a love that we have earned. There's nothing you can do from this moment forward to earn more of God's love, to receive more of his love. It is in Christ that we are fully loved. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, that chesed love, that, that loyal covenant-keeping love of God. And he will keep you to a thousand generations. And this love, dear ones, God's love, is most fully manifest in the sending forth of Jesus Christ to be this propitiation, this wrath-bearer for our sins. Too often, I think, we focus on the measure of God's love we have for God when we think about the Christian faith, not the measure of God's love for us. Dear ones, verses 18 through 20 of our text promise God's remnant that they are not without future hope, even with God's coming judgment. For God will gather his people. He will judge their enemies. He will heal the lame and help the outcast and turn the shame of his remnant into praise and renown in all the earth. And here we get a preview, not just of the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, but even more profoundly of the new heavens and the new earth where God's elect from the four corners of the earth will be gathered around his throne and will sing his praises forevermore as we read this morning from Revelation chapter 7. How then, dear ones, in light of all of this glorious good news about God's love for us, how should we live? How should we then live? Number one, approach God as a loving heavenly father. Approach him as a father. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. How do we pray? And Jesus said, Father, our Father. We approach God our Father through the mediation of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We approach our God as a loving Father through faith in Christ, and we rest in his ineffable love. Secondly, not only approach God as a loving Heavenly Father, rejoice in this love. Rejoice in this love. Live with a grateful, rejoicing heart. Contemplate often the depth and boundless uh, love of God for you. And thirdly, respond to God's love 
with childlike obedience. This is love for God, John says, that you obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Turn from your sin, not as a child seeking the good favor of his father, but a child who already has the perfect and unchanging favor of his father in Christ. Dear Christian, God is in your midst, powerful to save, and he rejoices over you with singing. He quietly contemplates his love over you, and he sings over you with joy, singing and rejoicing over his redeemed children, those who are clothed in the very righteousness of his Son and filled with inexpressible love for their God. Now that, indeed, is a love that is better than life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this John 3.16 of the Old Testament at the end of Zephaniah, for reminding us of that ineffable love that you lavish upon us in Christ. Help us, by your grace, Lord, to abide in that love, to know that love, that we know the height and the depth and the riches and the glory and the width and the breadth of this love, that we might abide in Christ and bear the fruit of our relationship with Christ, saved to the fullest and adorned with the fruit of the gospel, loving you, loving our neighbor, loving one another in the church. Help us to walk in this love, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you, uh, please, to take your uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn to number 241, O God Beyond All Praising. Stand and let us sing with all of our hearts.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.